0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone, and welcome to part two of my three-part conversation with Katrina Meredith. Katrina is a very interesting woman and so smart and so insightful, and she has been through so much. And it's wonderful that she wants to share her experiences, but also some of her new studies with all of us. So Katrina Meredith is pursuing her Ph.D. in community psychology, studying terrorism and extremism. She grew up in a new age cult from age 10 to 20 and currently lives in Atlanta, Georgia with her two children and her husband, who she met shortly after leaving the cult. In the 17 years since her exit, she has steadily worked to understand and resolve the trauma she experienced in a very abusive group setting while applying that knowledge to helping others. She is a writer and an activist, and she has really committed herself to learning about her experience so that she can do education and prevention for others. And during my first conversation with her, she talked about her childhood What happened to her when she was first brought into this group and how she was in charge of the children and trying to protect them. And now during this second conversation, she takes us through her teenage years within this group and eventually leaving it, which is actually even just the beginning of the next part of her story, which you'll hear next week. Here's Katrina now. I'm thinking about two things, and then I want to be able to, in terms of the chronology, go forward with you now. But sometimes when people are assigned, as you're saying, and that term is also very creepy, that you're assigned to somebody who is older, who's around your parents' age, that becomes a time where a lot of people I've spoken to said that they wanted their parents then to have a reaction to that. Like, here, I am now sexual with someone, or I'm being raped by somebody. Who is your peer? This should bother you, there are a lot of things that should bother you uh, that should have already bothered you, but this should really bother you yeah, I think
1: that I think um the young Swiss girl that was thirteen when the cult leader made her his girlfriend so at that point uh, some teenagers had joined so I wasn't the oldest anymore. I was the oldest of the kids then, but they were uh, four teenagers, and um, one of them became had to become the he just again girlfriend right i mean we <laughs> you know it's not that um and i think that's when a few of the adults did say something especially her dad and some other people but by the time i think three six years later when it was four years later when it was my turn um no everybody was used to it it was just it was, i mean I, no, my parents certainly didn't uh object or make a stink and um in retrospect they horrified yeah we think goodness that took a while though for them to go wait wait what you didn't think this was awesome I'm like no 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 not at all um but they said but you looked like you were happy in this relationship it's like I tried my hardest because I was told that I wasn't into it enough that I didn't love him enough that I should be committed more that I had to turn my disgust into love like so, um, so I faked it, yeah, but that's, um that wasn't really some of the grown ups might still have had difficult moments with that, but that was the whole point that the cult leader had set it up, so that any sort of disgust and natural human emotion you feel is what you need to overcome. They're holding mm-hmm. you back, they're the human emotions that make us human, and, and we didn't want to be humans anymore, we wanted to be gods, and mm-hmm. his idea as a psychopath of being a God is to not feel, to not be connected, to stand above it all. So that's what she tried to make us into.
0: You know, the whole idea of turning disgust into love. So, right. I mean, just to, to break down your barriers, to not have you be able to respond to the natural reaction, the instinctive reaction that you're having to the situation that you're in, to ignore it and also to have to see it in reverse. I sort of do a 180. Um, It is something also that I'm assuming did not apply to him as a leader. He didn't probably have to do anything he didn't want to do.
1: No, he didn't. Because his job was to be our mirror so he could be that complete asshole and he could be, I mean, horrific to people and he would put people together that hated each other. He could just torment people and he did systematically find the weak spots. And so people that 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 um I don't didn't like someone had to then be with that person. But it was just much more subtle. Somebody who was really fit and healthy before had to eat endless amounts of sugar until they would puke. I mean, just because just to overcome their desire to eat healthy. Or you know, if you've been a vegetarian, you had to eat lots of meats. If you um whatever it was, right? If you if you were really super smart and the only college educated person, you had to clean toilets. It's like the um yeah, but he uh and that started showing and that started to be one of the first wait a second moments for me. Is mm. um I was like, is he really in control? Is he really doing this because of us? Or is he just being childish here? Is he just not able to rein in his anger? And I think that started to slowly click with me over the first few years going, wait a second. That seems not on purpose. That seems you're just, you're just really emotional right now. The exact thing that you're telling us not to be. And honestly, more than that, I mean, I think he did a lot of that stuff before. The first thing that really, and I was well, no, 13 at the time, he had made two promises uh first when I was I think 11 or 12 he, he promised oh we'll have volunteers one day and then one of those can one of these guys can become your boyfriend I was like cool okay I'm gonna hold you to that and sure enough that didn't, didn't come true because then the first time we did a volunteer, I did have a crush and someone. like no 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 no, you can't do that you betray all of us and and the second thing which was he said we would go to Belize and all, each of us kids would get a pair of cowboy boots, which I really wanted because the in-group, the inner circle had all gotten cowboy boots already in preparation for going to live on a big ranch in Belize, in the jungle, and um, I wanted cowboy boots. And we were all going to get a horse. And I, I did some horseback riding as a kid. I absolutely loved it. So we were all going to get our own horse and cowboy boots. And then we got there and we took a whole pasture apart, all the rocks, we carried them off so that the horses we would get eventually wouldn't get hurt the hoofs or something. Um and then we didn't get either. We didn't get cowboy boots and never got horses. And then we even first we got to ride once or twice. Um and then only the inner circle again would go horseback ridings on the weekends. And it was one of those I think it just that moment of like, why do you have to lie to children? I mean I was 13 and going, you lied to us. But why? You're enlightened and it's not like I'm going to go anywhere. I'm already stuck here. So why would you promise me something and then not do that? It, it, it just—I just went. I couldn't understand it, and I think it was one of those first things of like, wait a second, he's lying. And it was yeah, something small, but it just. So I kept track of all the times he started lying, and just went.
0: Wait a moment. mm Hmm. And it happens so often that it that there is this carrot that's dangled where you work towards some sort of goal or the fulfillment of a promise, or you're told if you do these things, this will happen. And then when it doesn't, it just doesn't. Then there isn't anything you can say or do about it. You just have to kind of go along with it and not be outwardly upset. I'm assuming that was the same here.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, I couldn't uh, tell him like, Hey dude, what's up? No. So there was no way and there wasn't anybody to hold him accountable. And I think that's what started to just Mm. slowly sit in the back of my mind. Like, wait a second. He's constantly on us. He's constantly criticizing us. But what about him? Um, And for a while there it's like, Mm. Oh yeah, right, right, right. But he's enlightened. He's already perfect. Nobody has to. Mm-hmm. And then I would go again. Wait a second. That seems really shitty what he just did. No, no, no. But he's enlightened. He he does that for a purpose. And it just kept going back and forth until eventually I went, nope, no. Nope, I don't think you're enlightened at all. <laughs> Opposite. Right.
0: Yeah. Opposite day. That uh, whole idea of also not being held accountable. I mean, that is sort of one of the definitions as we talk about it of of a cultic group, and where anything can happen. There, there are uh, no guidelines. There's no governing body. There's no one overseeing it. There is no one who the leader has to answer to. And that's that's on purpose because that's how the leader organized it so they could get away with whatever they wanted to get away with.
1: And even when they do have some divine text or something right um it's usually pretty old it's not a recent one and well okay i guess sometimes it's a recent one but generally it's the interpretation no no wait only the leader can interpret the text you can't Mm -hmm. so it's it's again Mm -hmm. this whole idea of wait a second but you said the text said this and now it says something different So even when you have Mm -hmm. it in theory, black and white, it's still up for complete debate and it can be interpreted, but your interpretation is always wrong because aren't you in the dark and aren't you dumb? And so only the leaders can do that. Um, Yeah. Which again means that they can just move it around. So it suits their needs.
0: Yes. Okay. So I'm wondering just, just to go back for a moment when you were talking about taking care of the children, and then I want to ask about leaving and then moving forward from that. When you were using your creativity to uh, help distract the ones who you felt you wanted to be able to be there for and, and help, it seems like you were playing so many roles, that you were the therapist to a certain degree because you were trying to kind of keep the kids away from something that was uncomfortable, that seemed not quite Right. And then you were the big sister. You were the parent. I'm sure when there were a lot of feelings that might have come up, um, being able to also talk your brother off of a ledge, literally. Um, And then I think there was also probably something empowered about that for you, that you could do something. You could use your creativity. You could help to protect people that there weren't other opportunities for you. I think to feel like you could access any sense of control or power. Uh, What it does do, and and I'm I'm getting the sense that even though it did give you those benefits, Mm -hmm. there wasn't somebody like you for you.
1: No, (laughs) no, there wasn't. I mean, the only person that talked to me on a regular basis, meaning every day even, or a a few times a day or even once a day, was the guy that slept with me. So that was the mm. only emotional closeness I had. The only one that would ask me ever how I was doing. It wasn't anybody else. So, so um, And that was really confusing. So, so that was part of the reason I went, okay, I need to, to, to do whatever he says, because he's the only person in my life that's paying me any attention. The price is high, but I'm, I mean, I'm willing to pay. I had to anyway, right? I had to sleep with him no matter what, what my choices were. But, but that was the one thing. I mean, he, he would at least talk to me sometimes and uh <laughs> that's pretty
0: fucked up yes in retrospect so many things are in retrospect uh, about this
1: right but yeah I did have to be um I think I think the good thing about because not everybody had someone to live for or be, stay human for and I think because I had the younger kids and, and 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 the times that I stepped in and organized a dance party or we created a play or I Borrowed the camera and and we filmed it and I learned how to edit movies so I could edit that and, and and I always had to go against the leader and go can we have this can we do this and it was always a lot of back and forth so I felt I was even more indebted for him to him every time I asked him for something so that was also tricky but um what it did is definitely kept that part of me alive that often dies in a cult um the part of me that that uh still felt for other people or just still cared for someone and um there was an honest connection and 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 that that empathy i think that empathy piece that so often Mm. in a cultic group and that's and i've done loads of stuff during that time that i'm not proud of and that i I was ashamed for a long time um and i think that's hard when you leave and you've done things uh and often it's even in the realm of criminality right so i mean I was a child, but the other grown-ups should have gone to jail. Um, so that's problematic. Um
0: Right, right.
1: But I think so often we, we lose a big part of ourselves because we're in such a system where it's all about survival suddenly. Mm-hmm. The, the, the feeling that a lot of people that grew up in culture groups, the feeling that I, I had and a lot of others I talked to is that there's never enough. It's a fight at all times. You're fighting for the little bit of attention, a little bit of um, whatever will make you survive, right? A little bit of nurture, a little bit of approval from above, from the leader, from um, the little bit of, it's like tiny morsels. Everything's horrible most of the time. And then there's a little bit of something and it's dangled and everybody's supposed to fight. And that I think is what a sadist gets enjoyment out of. Is holding that and seeing people destroy each other in an effort to get this one life-saving little thing and uh i think that instinct was strong i did a lot of stuff in order to not be at the bottom because it was a very uncomfortable place when everybody was stepping all over you so yeah i would sometimes rat people out i would also do these things um but there was because there were some people that i saw as weaker and as deserving of being protected that kept some part of me alive during the time and so there's one part i didn't have to discover later I mean I found back to myself but that was some something that survived thank goodness
0: this idea that you had to hold on to your or that you did still hold on to your humanity and your conscience that you had a sense of that there are people who were in need of something
1: it's easier if you don't it's easier <laughs> it's much yes. easier to go with the flow and just go well I'm just following orders right I mean just think of Nazi Germany Those that go like, well, I'm just following orders. And those that constantly went, this is against everything I believe in, against what I think a human should do. Uh, Again, talking of the Nazis, right? Yeah, it's easier to go along and go, well, it's out of my hands. It's my government making me do this. Or it's the cult leader making me do this. I'm just following orders. It's much harder to go. I don't agree. It's much harder to go this. um, I think some people should, I I think you should protect people or people shouldn't be treated this way.
0: So the the idea also that uh, resources of every kind are going to be scarce, like being able to get kindness, being able to not be put on the hot seat that day. Yeah. Sometimes it, even who gets food and who doesn't, who is able to sleep. and
1: Oh, yeah. Who gets assigned to night watch? Who doesn't? Who has to do the dishwashing duty? Who doesn't? I mean, there's an endless list of really gruesome, gory tasks that nobody wanted because, well, Nobody got enough sleep as it was. Nobody got enough anything. Right.
0: And so that sets you into survival mode and that there are a lot of things that you will do at times to survive that in retrospect, you don't feel were in line with your conscience, but you had to make it through the day. Uh, And unfortunately, the, the people who went through that are the ones holding on to the shame or the guilt about it, even though they didn't craft that environment and that conflict, right. uh, it should be the ones who craft it, who who back you into that corner, but they don't have the capacity or interest to feel bad about it.
1: It's both, it's both. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations about this because of the grown ups that were there and technically did nothing, right? They stood by as child mm-hmm. abuse happened. And a couple of years ago, I went to a wedding and um, two of the guys were there, three, four with my dad who'd been in the cult. Mm. not a certain someone or i would have punched him Mm. i mean no Uh but one of them was on my table and didn't And he wasn't one of the totally horrible dudes right but still he was on my table and essentially talked about the weather wow and i was furious i i left and i was so furious and there was somebody else who just hi how are you but I don't think they even asked, how are you? But nothing, nothing that acknowledged, how are you doing now in life? I am so glad that you're here. I'm so happy that you seem to be doing well. I'm sure it was hard. I'm so sorry that we weren't there for your kids. I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to protect you. None of that. Mm-hmm. I just meant you spineless pieces of shit. I mean, look, there is personal responsibility. And I've apologized to those that... Um, Again, we're younger, weaker than me that I feel like I've heard in they, being kids too, but like, really, no. That was, forget about it, right? Thanks for saying something, but no, we're fine. Um, mm. But for the adults to who didn't protect children, to not acknowledge that and to pretend like it was all fine. Wow.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: So I think in that case, and it's not that I, it's just, I mean, really all I wanted was like, that was so wrong. I can't believe I followed along with this. I'm so sorry we didn't protect you. I'm so happy that you seem to be doing okay right now, but I'm sure it was hard. Is there anything I can do? That's it, right? But that's acknowledging, acknowledging that it was horrific, that they failed to protect us, and that it was wrong, and that they should have, and just being human. I mean, that that's what I was looking for. So yeah, not a huge, big apology, because it's not even like it's something too I don't feel like it's my role to forgive or any of that. Forgiveness is such a tricky word anyway, but it's more the point of this happened and acknowledging it. So I can go, cool, thanks. That really is good to hear. It's good to hear that you weren't all assholes. It's good to hear that you think it was wrong.
0: Yes, right. I think people don't realize how, in exactly the way you said it, it helps people turn a corner and it helps people feel like their pain was seen and understood and that the other person has the um, ability and also the interest in acknowledging.
1: Yeah, it's it's like I actually matter. It's good to know, right? And I think especially when you're a child and in such a situation where you're completely neglected and your needs don't matter ever, it's really important for your inner child or whatever later on to go, I did matter. Somebody did notice that I was hurting or somebody does care that, just that I mattered, my experience mattered, and uh, I mean that's the biggest thing in a cult, right? They, they they rip your story from you. You're not the main character anymore. You don't get to decide what to do with your story anymore, and they rewrite it, and you're suddenly just a bystander in your own life. And that feeling of helplessness, or feeling of stuck, is often what persists even after you leave. Mm-hmm. That feeling of I'm not in charge of my life. And for me, I think it took me until few years ago when i finally um and some really good therapy to finally go like wait i am like i uh, my feelings aren't some foreign thing like i'm actually this is part of me i I, what i'm feeling or or my creativity is actually part of me and i can own it or or my sexuality or or anything i want to do and also not feeling completely lost at sea in in this world Mm -hmm. Because mm-hmm. that was just the mode of operation was that I have no control. And I think um, having someone else say your, you, your viewpoint was real and, and your suffering was real, is, it's important. Yeah.
0: It's incredibly healing and important. And it's a, good, it's a good thing for people to listen to who have ever been involved in a situation, people who might be listening right now. Where it is an important thing to acknowledge, and even if you were in this family system where you were a sibling or an older sibling, whatever it is,
1: and often it is that it just takes. Even if you're you're in a completely abusive situation and you can't escape, it often helps to just have that one adult outside of that, right? That one person outside who goes, "This isn't normal," and no, you're not right. crazy for wanting to get out of this. You're not crazy for being hurt, because the abusers always make it feel like it's your fault, right? So that way, the victim goes. Wait, am I, am I nuts? Should I be loving my family? W- why am I not able to love them? It's like, well, maybe because they hurt you nonstop. Maybe because they don't respect your boundaries. Maybe that's why you don't love them. It's not you. But I would always tell people, like, no, 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 it's not you. It's <laughs> them.
0: Right. So, in keeping with that theme of then, and I love the way you said it—that you're not the main character in your story; that you're a bystander, and they rewrite your yeah. story. Anyway. so then once you leave. And once you left, you have the potential to start being the main character in your story. Again, although it takes some doing, I think you you still become kind of a, a, a side character, but you're developing, it seems, and more form and shape and a sense of who you are, which sometimes prompts people to leave. What also happens sometimes is that a group just falls apart. So the fact that they're out, doesn't mean that they have really made a statement about leaving. They just there wasn't a group to belong to anyway. So I'm curious what your story was, just in terms of leaving, and also if your parents left at the same time. What happened during that time, and now getting to you as a parent yourself.
1: So I I didn't leave uh, on my own, and I think that's something that uh, to this day scares me that I would have stayed, that it was always bad. But every time it got really, really bad, the cult leader would back off. Something would change in the dynamics. And so it was always just barely still tolerable. And it's amazing how you can just bear more and more. So even as it got all shittier and then just my tolerance for abuse apparently became bigger too, which is a big problem. So uh, what happened was that the girl that the cult leader had slept with when she was 13 was now 22 we were still in Belize. Uh, the environmental project um, had opened its door a bit, so that means our commune had wasn't quite as tight-knit. We had invited some volunteers in and visitors, and uh, Belizeans were working on the ranch, and that just changed the dynamic. Obviously, we couldn't just have five-hour meeting in the middle of the day because it would look suspicious because, yeah, where mm-hmm. did everybody go suddenly? And why are they all sitting around? And so the cult leader lost some of the control in that respect. Uh, And then what happened is humans came. (laughs) Those evil creatures that were so underdeveloped and so below us. And they were really nice. And that just, um, there were some that were were my age. And I just went, oh, they're fun to hang out with. And they actually talked to me and asked me questions and engaged with me much more than any of my, my big family here does. And uh, they started voicing criticism too. Like, why do always the same people go horseback riding or get to fly in this airplane, get a small airplane? Why do the, why is it always the same people that get to do this stuff and everybody else is working all the time? Like, um, because they're spiritually more involved. (laughs) Like, how do you explain that? Uh, Because they're sleeping with the leaders? I don't know. So yeah, it's, um, right so it was a bit so so that brought in some again of that perspective from the outside that so that the system started collapsing i mean that's really what was going on already so then um the young woman then 22 ran away she had uh fallen in love with some Belizean policeman who'd come to the ranch occasionally and oddly enough i was the only one because i was working at the restaurant who noticed them together and i went Oh, this is so obvious, I mean, obviously Arna must know, I'm not even gonna report it, thank goodness. I mean, if I had, might've been another few years in the cold, so I'm, yeah. But it was one of those free things where I'm like, oh, okay, this is, okay, fine, whatever. Um, didn't say anything and then she ran away. Uh, the leader left. left the ranch maybe two or three times a year of that, I mean, and he went away to something that would take four hours, he was gone and she had prepared a backpack, I don't know if she was able to access her passport or not I think no she just gotten some money a uh, passport was stored away somewhere else and she ran down the airstrip with we built and uh, met this police cop and ran off with him and they leader ballistic and that's when I really went oh you are you're so out of it he just he managed to call her, and I mean, they'd already debated going after her with guns, but this was a very, not just a cop, but he was in the uh, drug unit and had bigger guns. So, um, ah. yeah, because, yeah, again, they had guns on the ranch and all that. So so that was just, okay, they can't get her back by force. So they got her on the phone, and, and Arno was just yelling at her and telling her he loved her, and he was going to, if didn't come back, he would go into the airplane and fly into the sky and then fall to his death, and I'm just going to... That's not how you, no, that's not how this works. I, don't, I know very little about love, but this is not it. And that really, um, yeah, just seeing him act absolutely childish and losing it, and being jealous, absolutely out of, I mean, jealous. And I just went, you're not enlightened. And he, so Arno and Julie, uh, both within a day to left the country because they were afraid of child abuse charges. Police uh, is super strict. So they would have all gone to jail it's much harder in Germany to press charges Uh, the age is definitely uh, higher so that sucks but uh, in Belize it's pretty straightforward and they don't treat child abusers lightly and there's a really nasty prison you go to so they left quickly and that just left us all in that like whoa what happened the leader is an idiot Uh, um, and we all were talking and you know all those doubts over the years all the stuff that piles up we were suddenly able to talk to each other. And before that, its I mean, everybody was spying on everybody. And every time you would share any concerns with someone, next day you would be standing in front of the leaders and you would be bombarded and ridiculed and often then, yeah, and sadly punished. So this was the first time you could talk openly. And most people then, the, the cult leader went to Germany, back to Germany and said, follow me. And most people went, nope, and all of us young younger people mm-hmm. went absolutely no way uh, unfortunately my mom did follow him mm-hmm. so my dad my brother and I were out um, and she followed him and she got out three years ago so it took a long time so she didn't get to know my kids until very
0: recently three years ago so what is the time frame uh, 2002
1: the cult ended in 2002 so a long time were we then at some point I had to break off contact just because it was better for me I mean I knew that any emails I sent her could be read by the cult leader. I didn't want him to be have any part in my kids' lives. Once I became mm-hmm. a mom, I'm like, no, I'm not sharing anything, no photos, nothing, because I don't want him to see my happiness. Because he destroyed everyone's happiness, so I was very protective of my new life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then the transition began to the real life. I mean, yeah, uh, I had finished fourth grade. That was it um after that a bit of homeschooling but not much um and so I I was already working full-time was running a small restaurant that we built on the ranch for tourists so I kept doing that for a while uh started a correspondence course with Germany to in hospitality because I figured why not uh, and then you kind of saw everybody was dealing with it differently I was just keeping myself really busy and going, going right, next thing I'm just going to pretend this never happened my mm-hmm. brother went out drinking so, okay. um and then I met uh met Aaron he's my husband now has <laughs> been since I mean and he uh he was a Peace Corps volunteer in Belize and I ran into him and yep I really liked him <laughs> he was authentic he was just himself he was just who he was and very honest and very grounded and after all the drama and all the insecurities, I mean, the guy I was assigned to at 15 was horribly broken and insecure and wanted me, a 15-year-old, I mean, he was in the 30s and wanted me to lift him up and adore him so he would feel better about himself, which was really messed up. And I just didn't want that. I didn't want a partnership ever again where I had to lift someone up and be there, you they so amazing. No, I wanted someone that was just, Okay with themselves,
0: and also then had the capacity to be able to be there for you,
1: yes, but that wasn't even on my radar because I was fine. <laughs> I was totally fine
0: yeah, because no one needs anything because you can't you couldn't need anything, right, so you had to be fine and yeah, I, I, you... I had to
1: be fine, and that's what I operated on. I'm fine, everything's okay, uh, but only when I started to truly feel safe, we left Belize, I followed Aaron to the u s only when I was far away from it all, and I felt loved and um Say, did all this stuff really start coming up
0: okay and i'm sure that was a very difficult time suddenly I, I, important incredibly important a watershed moment a necessary moment in terms of healing but tremendously uncomfortable and probably at times overwhelming
1: yes yes <laughs> that's the short answer right i mean it's it's uh you get out and people think it's the happy ending right um and it is—it is an ending. It's an ending of a really horrific time of your life, and I completely understand the desire to just go. Well, that's done. I'm leaving this all behind. I'm just gonna mm-hmm. do a butterfly and reinvent myself. And woohoo, fresh wings here! Look at me. Um, didn't quite work that way, obviously. I—I uh, I tried. I wasn't even going to tell Aaron before we married that I that all of this had happened. I mean, I didn't even have names. I couldn't even call it a cult then, but I, I wasn't going to tell him. And my, my brother <laughs> at that point was probably wiser than me. When, look, you look, you want to spend the rest of your life with this guy, then you need to be honest. And I went, no, I'm just starting over. He goes, you should tell him <laughs> he had mm-hmm. just read the beach. And uh, so it was a bit further yeah. along on the whole something was really messed up here this was not just a commune something was really really wrong and dark and I hadn't yet so I um it took me a bit longer but yeah I did I did tell my husband uh and he had no idea what that meant for him for me for our relationship Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's like well okay that sounds terrible you okay I'm like yeah (laughs) all right (laughs) um yeah. Right. and then then started real life uh then started the whole i mean the euphoria at first is i'm alive i'm out i'm in the real world this is amazing i get to decide what to do now mm-hmm. and then wore off after a while um and and the nightmares started and kept going and and uh and i would just have all these uh, i didn't know it was anxiety at the time but it was a lot of um i mean just ptsd right lot of nightmares flashbacks something would trigger i mean triggers i t- took a few years before i ever heard that word now it's here and everywhere uh, mm-hmm. but not in early 2000s so it was a uh, it took a while to learn the names and to learn oh this is i mean post-traumatic stress disorder the first time i heard that i'm like what is that and then chronic stress and and i went Oh yeah, no, no. now that I think about it, we were constantly under stress, constantly under attack. So I think that's something I'm trying to help people with now is, is for, it's for the experience. You know, this is not abnormal. You react perfectly normal to an abnormal situation. And this is what it's called. And this is how people often move on from this or recover or there are ways, there are processes. And I found a really good therapist after a lot of back and forth Um, But basically, I knew I still wanted kids, and so I don't think I would have gone to therapy for myself, Mm -hmm. but I realized it was completely messing up my relationship, and and it was going to destroy my marriage if I didn't, because I was extremely defensive, and uh, I, I was... I mean, I was constantly ready to be attacked still. I mean, I was out and safe, but my body didn't know. I mean, I still felt that any little thing, I mean, my neck was constantly hurting, my back was hurting. I was constantly ready for the next attack. And, uh, and so anything my husband did that was slightly, he was just voicing opinions, right? He's one of the sweetest guys I know, but he is human and he would sometimes get upset over something and just say it. And I would immediately just boom complete uh attack or, I'm, or like, I'm out. Yeah, I was extremely defensive. And then the black and white thinking. I mean, my idea of, uh, there's one right way to do everything In that state, right? One right way to be a partner, one right way to be a student, one right way to be a mother, later when I became a mother. There is only one right way. And it was complete black and white thinking. And I really, um, it took me a long time to realize that I have to find my way to do things. And that just, and I I am limiting myself and my world. If I tell my husband, this is this tiny, this this is how you show love. That's all. That's exactly how you show love. Everything else I'm not accepting is love. I mean, it took me a while to realize that, that I was being totally unreasonable and also all or nothing. Right. So Mm -hmm. he would show love in all these many, many, many wonderful ways that I didn't perceive because it didn't fit this tiny few that I thought it should look like. And so I, yeah, it just ruined a lot of really great moments. And the fact that I was constantly on guard and um, couldn't relax meant that I ruined every vacation. <laughs> 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 I mean, the anxiety would start before I went on vacation because the idea of doing nothing. And, and, and I mean, from I don't deserve this, I don't deserve anything good, just huge guilt over having anything nice mm-hmm. to um, this intense... It's supposed to be great. I don't know what that means. How do you enjoy something? If one thing went wrong in vacation, the slightest thing, it was all shit. It was all gone. That's it. That's it. The vacation is ruined, and and it, it got really tedious. I mean, it got exhausting for my husband. It got really exhausting for me, and it just so I kept running. I mean, I had these, these messages in my head, right? The circular thinking that the you don't deserve this. You 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 should feel ashamed. You should feel guilty. Mm-hmm. Someone's gone out to destroy you, um, you can never shine or have a good moment because others will begrudge you and take it away from you and tear you apart. I mean, I was deadly afraid of success, of, of 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 ever appearing happy or being happy, and somebody would just tear it apart. I was convinced of that. And constantly on guard. And I didn't realize that I had high levels of anxiety all the time. I just thought it was normal to feel outside of my body to, to, to not know what's going on, to just feel completely in flutter mode and not be able to ground myself or know what I'm feeling, not to be able to name anything. I'm feeling not to be able to think about it. My thoughts just going all directions, not to be able to feel myself. I just felt myself expanding outwards from my body dissociation probably, but it's just, I mean, it was just a host of stuff that I couldn't name. I had no idea what was going on. And, um, I thought that's just the way I am.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't realize that it was something that had been cultivated during the cult that was often purposefully done by people in power in order to keep me extremely vulnerable. Yeah. It's kind of like the poison. It's like, yeah, like somebody um, giving you a poison and then you carry it around with you and think it's part of you and, and <laughs> keeps poisoning you. And <laughs> I had to really first see that it's not a part of me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and that it's not necessary. I mean, that. The other part is so interesting when you're talking uh I mean, I can feel the intensity as you're as you're talking about it, and uh, the hypervigilance mm-hmm. that you brought from your childhood experiences into your adult experiences um, were necessary at one time yeah. uh, and it can feel that they're still necessary, and it can feel, I think, scary to lower the vigilance because then there's, I think in terms of the black and white thinking, there can be this automatic assumption that then you're going to be hurt as soon as you are not protecting yourself or as soon as you're not on the offense or defense. Mm-hmm. And then when you're talking about poison, I think that's such an interesting way to think of it. Cause I was going to say here, you're on vacation or here you're with someone who loves you and you love them. You could be having joy. You could be taking in that moment as something wonderful. And instead the your need for survival and the what the consistent sort of cortisol release, the chronic stress, you bring that with you and then you're not able to take in the good that you uh, have or sustain it. And so what helped to turn that around? You're saying it was therapy also learning what those things were and how to define them. Was there something else that, that helped you feel safe or safer?
1: I mean, first I had to realize that I needed help again. Uh... And I thought I'd done therapy, is fine. And then I became a mom. Uh, I became, I mean, I got pregnant and it felt like my body was invaded again. I I, I didn't, some sexual abuse survivors have this feeling of rebirth and the body is now growing life and it's a wonderful thing. I didn't. (laughs) I, I had the opposite. I felt like my body wasn't my own anymore. I hated every moment of pregnancy because I I I felt disconnected. Something was happening to my body. I had no control over it. I was really afraid. And then um, it was a traumatic birth and the emergency C-section. And all that. Uh, so that all didn't go as planned. But it never does. Um, again, by black and white thinking. I I had ex- I had a pretty clear idea of this. Is what it should be like. It should be marvelous and surprise. Um, life happened. And then I had postpartum depression, um, and it was a mix. And, and at some point, uh, early on, a doctor, but actually, doctor didn't bother seeing me. The nurse practitioner said it was postpartum psychosis. Uh, it probably was, it might have been, but talking to a trauma therapist later who really knows her stuff, is uh, it was the PTSD. It, I had a shit ton of anxiety and fear. I was deadly afraid of someone destroying my new family. I was in constant state of fear of something happening to my child. I was so afraid. And then mixed with the postpartum depression, I was just, the world was a terrible dark place. And again, that's why the psychosis possibly is that I was at the point where I had convinced myself that it had been a complete mistake to have children. That it was, that it, it had been a very selfish move on my part and it was completely wrong. and nobody would bring a child into this terrifying, terrible, and unsafe world. And I uh, I got very close to reversing that. And that's what I'm extremely helpful for, that at some point somebody had mentioned signs of postpartum depression and what happens in your head. And, and I had studied, I had a Bachelor in psychology at that point. And still I had myself this close to following through on doing something of that I would have regretted for the rest of my life. So thank goodness, some part of me went, wait, wait, you're right about this. <laughs> <laughs> and I stepped away from from the bathtub in that case and, and went, whoa, and just freaked out and went, what just happened? What the hell just happened? And how how did I get here? And how do I get far away from this? And it was the next few months that followed and it really took a couple of years, were were extremely scary because I didn't trust myself. It was again that feeling of I don't know what's happening inside my head. And that was triggering too, right? I mean, just the hormones of the totally normal pregnancy hormones that drop after you give birth, that up and down roller coaster was triggering as hell for me because I had not been in charge of my body, my feelings, my, my, my thoughts for so long. I had the leader's messages going through my head. I had controlled my emotions so much that I couldn't feel them anymore and that they felt like foreign beings. And my body wasn't mine for the sexual abuse, but also in pregnancy. And so, and then nursing, I mean, so there was this whole mix of things where I felt completely out of control and these feelings were going up and down and I just was afraid. I was completely afraid. And I think that's when I went, I, I need help. And I couldn't find a therapist at first. I went through two, well, one terrible one, one so-so one. But then I realized that my daughter was two years old and I couldn't bond with her. I just I, I just couldn't I, I just didn't have that I, I just couldn't allow myself to get close. I was too terrified and um and then I became pregnant with my son and I really I have a younger brother. I really, really, really wanted a boy. I wanted the girl, the older girl, the younger boy. I mean, I just really wanted both. And we went to um, to get the ultrasound to find out what gender it is. And we're sitting there and we're super excited. And before we go, we're like, okay, if it's a boy, it's it's this name. And we already picked his name. And it was all, we were so happy to kind of, we went in and the nurse says, it's a boy. And I I, I started to feel this feeling of joy bubbling up and me stopping it. Mm. And I went, I stopped the feeling of joy. Because I felt the tears coming up, and I, I I didn't cry. I didn't like to cry, and I, I I felt it coming up, and I pushed it down, and I sat in the car afterwards, and the feeling was, it wasn't, it, it was gone. The moment was gone, right? The joy came back later, but the moment was gone, and I just went, felt numb again. I went, no, no, I'm, I can't feel the good stuff. I that that was supposed to be one of the happiest moments of my life, among many, but and and I stopped it and i didn't allow myself to feel it and that's when i went yeah fuck this i'm gonna do whatever it takes to to address this and feel again and until that point i had been very afraid of my feelings i'd been afraid that pandora's box if i open it all hell's gonna break loose i'm gonna all this dark stuff is gonna come out and i was afraid of everything inside me it was very dark there was a lot of dark feelings um thoughts a lot of fear a lot of anxiety so i never rested inside myself i always kept myself busy i always stayed out there Mm -hmm. and i think that's when i've called around and finally got a good therapist and saw her every week and we really went into all the dark stuff all the feelings all the fears all the abandonment all the everything and it's slowly and she just said look you can't feel the good stuff without the bad stuff you can't choose and pick you either feel or you don't feel and I had I had chosen not to feel because it felt safer. And she helped me break that. And it really was. It was like there was this glass wall between me and the world and I couldn't connect with the world. But it, I, I thought it was safer. What it did in reality was cut me off and deny me all the gorgeous stuff, the great vacations, the fun, spontaneous moments, the closeness with my kids, with my partner, with friends, because I kept everything behind that wall. And uh, mm-hmm. But once I started to tear that down, I mean she taught me to cry I, I didn't know to just let go and cry before it would happen occasionally but I would be really upset at myself and stop it all the time if I could so but she taught me to just let it go and not judge it and just keep crying and mm-hmm. um and I cried a lot <laughs> and a lot mm-hmm. and a lot but it yeah it, it it really happened I I I started to connect with myself with my Children with my husband, with friends, and it's authentic connections where I wasn't afraid anymore of it being destroyed, and where I was okay with being vulnerable and I was okay to show parts of myself. And that's when I also started uh, going public about my story. I mm-hmm. uh, started first with a blog, it was a bit accusatory, It was a, it was often the first purge of. <laughs> <laughs> right oh, you fuckers and and then um and then it matured into <laughs> I <love> it. Uh-huh. <laughs> into something else um and then we moved away to switzerland at that point to to which uh which was good i think that's when i came out publicly um and talked about my story and wrote something for a newspaper and just uh, found a sense of peace with um it's, it's it's my experience. It's it's part of my. It's, it's it's a few chapters of my book, but it's it's just that. It's just a few chapters, and I am in charge now of how it continues and how it ends. And so, I was able to take that back.
0: One more thing before you go. Katrina was able to continue her story today. And she is going to continue talking about her experiences next week as well. She was involved in this isolationist and psychologically tormenting group. And the way she talks about it, with all the detail, you can get a sense of her feelings there and what life was like. She also talks about how when she was out and safe, She knew she was out and safe, but her body didn't know it. As you know, every once in a while, someone says something while they're talking, and I write down and I think, ah, that's what I want to talk about during the one more thing before you go. And that was it for me. When people are out of situations that overwhelm their system and have put them in harm's way or have made them feel unsafe or unprotected, or that has caused them to have an extended release of cortisol, the stress hormone. They can be physically out, but psychologically in, in so many ways, but also still physiologically still in, in so many ways. Our bodies respond to the threats around us. And actually, thank goodness, we learn what we need to keep ourselves safe, often through experience. And then Once we've had that experience, our body puts up a bit of a defensive shield like an alarm system that alerts us when something feels dangerous again. It alerts us sometimes when we are in the very same situation or when we actually maybe hear a sound that's similar to something that had put us in danger before, something that sounds the same, or we smell something that is a familiar smell to the place, to the environment we were in when we were traumatized. And sometimes our body kind of misfires. Actually, I'd say rather that it kind of calls in the troops even after the war is over. So when we're out of a bad situation, we can still be reacting to it for quite some time. And it can sometimes elude us when we try to find what the triggers are that are still causing us to have those big reactions, those reactions that make us feel out of control, like we're somehow still there that cause us to have the nightmares that cause us to have the day mares. And it could be just because we're potentially in a new relationship where previously when we were in a relationship with anyone and meant that we needed to be submissive or we were going to be hurt, or we were going to be betrayed, or we're going to be at that person's mercy through no fault of their own, well, the new person, but just by virtue of them being somebody who you feel close to, or you then feel emotionally vulnerable with. And it touches that very scared spot inside of you. We will sometimes have a startle response that's overly exaggerated, and I also find that people who have not talked about their experiences and have not been able to share all the details, they have the memories embedded in their systems, and then they don't have an understanding about their trigger points and how to help diffuse them when needed. So, as usual, this reminded me of a story, and I'd like to tell it to you now. I was working with a woman one time who had left her household growing up, where she had a mother who was quite cruel psychologically. And she caused my client and my client's younger brother to be in constant conflict with each other, playing them off each other, making one not trust the other, making one attack the other for things that ended up being false stories and false narratives and false accusations. The mother loved playing these games. So, They grew up with such distrust of each other, but were finally able to reconcile and realize that it was their mother who had kind of created the conflicts. And sometimes these conflicts got very physical, but they still were able to understand that they weren't each other's enemy. And it was quite wonderful for them to get back into each other's kind of good grace and to be able to trust each other and realize that they should be aligned because they've kind of survived the war together. But for some reason, she was left never being able to feel quite comfortable in the places she lived afterwards. Uh, Sometimes it was a room that she was renting or an apartment she was renting or a guest house she was renting or wherever it was. She couldn't quite relax. And she didn't know why. She also knew that her brother was not having the same experiences as she was. He was able to move on, albeit with some nervousness about relationships, but not with the same kind of physiological response to the places he was living. So she was trying to understand why she was left with so many moments that caused her heart to race and for her to break out into a sweat when she was just lying in bed at night, when that was not the case for him. So I was talking to her one time about her experiences, and I was struck by the details she would give about the times that she would hear her mother walking into her brother's room down the hall, first knocking lightly on his door and then opening his door and then closing his door and then kind of hearing their muffled conversation, then opening his door and closing his door and walking down the hallway to her room. And she knew that when her mom walked into her room, the mom would tell some story about how her brother had just defamed her or accused her of having broken something and something that was actually his fault and she would get mad at him. And while none of these conversations actually took place the way the mother told the daughter that they took place, so the brother never actually said these things, the mother would create these stories as she would go up and down the hallway. She also knew that being told these stories was something that was always going to make her upset. So she had this association with hearing her mom talk and getting upset. So she thought, well, maybe that's it. Maybe it's that someone who might have a voice like her mom's would make her upset. So when she would go back to the place that she was living, she would listen to her landlord's voice She would listen to her neighbors' voices, and it just didn't quite seem to be the source of her trigger points. So one time I asked if she wouldn't mind kind of telling me the stories again, with as much detail as she could remember. And she talked about having somebody knock on her brother's door, and having the muffled conversations, and the walking down the hallway, and the knocking on her door. And I said to her, you know, I can hear the stories that you are telling me. I realized she didn't talk about what her mother looked like. She didn't talk about what her house looked like. She talked about the sound of the bottom of her mother's high heels walking along the wooden planks in the hallway. And so suddenly she said, "That's it." So, as it is sometimes with all the people who say something that is impactful and meaningful but was totally unintentional, I said, "What's it?" And she said, "It's the sounds." Anytime I hear the sound of someone knocking lightly on a door and someone walking in heels or hard-bottomed shoes that make a kind of clacking sound on wood, And the way it sounds when a certain kind of door opens and closes, any place I've lived that has had wooden floors, or any place where I was close to my next door neighbor where I would hear people lightly knocking on their door, I would suddenly feel this need to leave. I would feel this need to check my lease to see how long it was and to see when I could move out without having to pay too many fees. And so then I asked why her brother was not affected in the same way. And she said something so fascinating. She said, you know, I don't know, maybe he was just stronger than I was. And maybe it's because he was hard of hearing that he had learned to have some kind of ways of defending himself and protecting himself. And then suddenly she stopped talking and she said, that's it. My brother was hard of hearing. So He doesn't have an association with these sounds because he didn't really hear these sounds. Well, I don't suggest going over a story over and over again with so much detail, with every sensory detail, unless you really feel ready and unless you feel you're with someone who can take you through all of these details safely. But it seems that once you do, that's where some of the revelations can begin. And yet again, with all the humility that I have in this work that I do, she was the one who kind of put the puzzle together. All I said was, I can hear your story. And that was it. She realized her trigger point was in those sounds. But the next part of the story is actually really important as well. So what do you do if you're living somewhere And the wooden floors make the same sound that you remember that left you feeling traumatized. Or the sound of the door opening and closing. What do you do when your heart starts racing and you break into a sweat or you suddenly get a headache or a stomach ache or feel hopeless or scared? So you can say to yourself, I don't have to be afraid of these sounds anymore. Those sounds are made by people who are not trying to hurt me. Those sounds are just made by the combination of knuckles on a door or the bottom of a shoe, and you don't ascribe meaning to them. But you can also say, I'm not any less safe now when I hear these sounds as I was before I heard them, whatever works for you. And you can decide that those sounds mean that you have lived past your childhood and you are now in your own place of your own choosing and have a home or an apartment around you that you've helped provide for yourself through your hard work, Through pushing through your trauma and to hear it as a symbol of your strength and success and perseverance and survival. So, when I told her that, she told me that the next time she heard someone walking down the hallway, she thought of all the things I had said that she could think to herself. And instead, she thought of something that actually really worked for her, which was okay, she said to herself in her head. I know that's not my mother. But if you were my mother now, as she kind of pretended or play acted that that actually potentially was her mother, she continued this dialogue in her head. But if you were my mother now, as an adult, I would get to the door before you get there. And I would open it and I would tell you to get the hell out of my house You don't deserve to be here anymore. You don't deserve to be in my head. You don't deserve to scare me. You never did. There's something wrong with you, and I'm better than you, and I'm kinder than you, and I would never do to anyone what you did to me. And if you don't leave, I'm calling the police. That's the favorite part of her empowered story the calling of the police, and then what her mother does afterwards, which is that her mother, in her mind, turns around and walks away defeated. It works for her, and one day she might not need to keep telling that story. But for now, it keeps her strong. Find your story. Find your way to respond to your trauma, to the multisensory memories of your trauma. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com.